I'm Phil Rickaby, and I've been a writer and performer for almost 30 years. But I've realized that I don't really know as much as I should about the theater scene outside of my particular Toronto bubble. Now, I'm on a quest to learn as much as I can about the theater scene across Canada. So join me as I talk with mainstream theater creators you may have heard of, and indie artists you really should know, as we find out just what it takes to be stage-worthy. If you value the work that I do on Stageworthy, please consider leaving a donation either as a one-time thing or on a recurring monthly basis. Stageworthy is created entirely by me, and I give it to you free of charge with no advertising or other sponsored messages. Your continuing support helps me to cover the cost of producing and distributing the show. Just four people donating $5 a month would help me cover the cost of podcast hosting alone. Help me continue to bring you this podcast. You can find a link to donate in the show notes, which you can find in your podcast app or at the website at stageworthy.ca. Now, on to the show. Patrick Blencarn and Milton Lim are the creators of Asses Masses. Asses Masses is a custom-made video game designed to be played on stage by a live audience. Asses Masses can be seen and played at Toronto's Theatre Centre from September 22nd to 24th. In this conversation, we talk about video games as art and theater, how this theatrical video game came about, and much more. Here's our conversation. Would one of you like to uh, give me a synopsis, the elevator pitch, on what uh, Asses Masses is? An elevator pitch for a seven-plus-hour show. <clears throat> All right, let's do it. Um, it could be a long elevator ride. Yeah, let's go to the top. Uh, so, in a nutshell, Asses Masses is a seven-plus-hour, like, epic narrative about a herd of donkeys who have lost their jobs due to technological progress and are pretty dead set on getting those jobs back. Um, it's also a custom video game that we have built and designed um, amongst the two of us, as well as like an international team. And, uh, you know, we like to also think of it as a collaborative journey that an audience, like a live audience in a theater goes on. Um, so it's a, it, there are no actors on the stage. And is that, is that right? The audience sort of becomes the, the performers? Yes, that's correct, Phil. So uh, in the essence of labor being deferred, um, we as artists do not perform. There are no actors on stage. And in fact, the audience takes on that role to take us through the seven plus hour narrative. There are video games that are that are fun to watch as a group. There are video games that are, uh, so for example, like a Mass Effect. You could sit, one person could play that game and another person, person can watch that game and get a lot out of it. You know, you watch it like a movie. Some video games are good for that and some video games are are, are more difficult for that. What is it? about this game that makes it uh, or this show slash game that makes it watchable for an audience for the people who are not actively playing it. I think that's a, a really good point. I love that you brought up Mass Effect because it's true. There are a lot of role playing games where someone can kind of fill that spot and then it's all about that person executing the story. For Asses Masses, just imagine that it's a game in which you actually need to have people who are watching you. So we as game designers have gone in and uh, it's actually it's meant for people to be sitting behind you giving commentary, uh, giving tips, uh, providing extra sets of eyes and extra memory for like when one player fails. If this is a game that you can't actually do alone very well. And I guess I feel like we should be a bit more clear. So if everyone who's like, you know, listening to this is imagining you come into a theater and there is a plinth at the downstage front of the theater. And on that plinth, there is a video game controller. And the audience is tasked with the responsibility of negotiating who has the controller at any given time. And the point of that is that there is a negotiation of power that's taking place in the story about what the donkeys are going to do next, what the next options are going to be, as well as this sort of power negotiation that's happening in the theater. So when we talk about like, I guess you could say when we talk about 
what are we watching when we're watching asses masses? Yes, we are watching a game get played, but we're also watching each other. We're watching our community or like a sort of a social public that has gathered, try to figure out how to give space, take space from each other. You know, this question of, is it my turn now is often one that we sort of like foreground as how and where in our sort of social fabric do we feel like we have permission to put our hands up and say, Hey, can I play or can it be my turn now? I don't think that what's happening right now is maybe the best way to do it. Or I think I have another, I have a dissenting opinion about, you know, the way we're going to sort of like execute this protest. Can I, can I have a go? And, um, so there's a lot of, I guess, when we talk about sort of modes of spectatorship and what it means to be at a theater, especially, you know, when we're in a theater and I think in a lot of cases, we understand one of the great affordances of theater is that you are able to watch things of your own choice. Like unlike certain cinematic practices that really sort of force you to say, look here, look here, look here. Asses masses. Similarly, like, yes, there is a very cinematic, almost video game that plays out at times, like we will talk more about sort of the styles of games that we use. Um, but there's also this room and there's food in that room. And, you know, you've been there for seven and a half hours or maybe more, depending on how you're playing it. So there is this invitation to sort of take up space and sort of make it your own and create a home for that community in the context of that theater. And maybe just to, in case anyone's listening and they say, this sounds a little bit like couch co-op games or like couch cooperative games where we're all just sitting on a couch and like we're, we're either playing together or we're taking turns. Um, it's very much extending from those sorts of practices in also let's play videos um, where you're like you are actively participating in spectating what's happening. Um, but it's all that plus the added kind of participatory theater element. Yeah, I think that's a great way to say it. it's like, you know, if you're thinking, if you're listening to this and you're like, oh, that sounds like couch co-op, we would be like, exactly. That's the whole book. <laughs> it's couch co-op, except there's a hundred people on your couch. And um, some of them are your friends and some are the people who just like have come over. And if anyone was, you know, a youth of some age in the late nineties or two thousands, I think a lot of us actually had those sort of experiences. You know, you're at a, a bunch of people come over to your house and like, you're trying to like share, I don't know, NBA street. Or you're trying to share all of a sudden someone's like, hey, I want to play this like RPG game, which is totally just a one player game. Or even if it's just Mario 64, that there's this um, this kind of collaboration that's really alive and active, uh, but also gives you the permission to like go and get more food and come back, which we, you know, we'll get to that as well as like what hospitality means and what does it mean to sort of take seriously the the context in which we normally experience video games and sort of bring them into the theater and all the things that we have to import with them. It's funny you mentioned the the that couch co-op, the way that they would become really active. Um, I can remember playing uh, Final Fantasy VII way back in the day uh, with my roommates, and one of us would be playing the game and everybody else would be shouting about whatever was going on. We would read the the dialogue out in a dramatic fashion and we would like just shout, no, don't do that. No, hit him with it. You know, it was all the so very active in a way that I think that uh, I don't know if people do that so much anymore, because I think there was a uh, sort of a couch co-op sort of disappeared for a while and was it was all online play. And there's sort of a resurgence now of, of couch co-op games that I'm seeing. Uh, and hopefully we haven't uh, lost the loud uh, well, and I think asses masses, hopefully is a testament to that. No, we haven't lost it. And people do know how to do it. Um, they've been doing it in Buenos Aires. They've been doing it in Kingston and Halifax, Dartmouth. And, you know, we're talking because we're sort of at the lead up to some shows that we're doing in Toronto at the theater center. Um, we also have shows in Mexico city, like in two weeks. So we're pretty confident that in those places too, people have not forgotten how to yell at each other. Um, so in a very supportive way, um, you know, in a guiding way, in a very sort of firm backseat driving kind of way, in all the ways, I guess, like, you know, in between. I'm curious about the the mediation uh, between who's playing and uh, like who decides who's playing, all that sort of stuff. Is there an in-room mediator? Or is it entirely the, the, the audience uh, uh, making the decision? There's nobody who's, is there somebody who's like, helping to make those decisions or is it entirely like if somebody is standing there for like two hours the audience has to decide to get them off 
there is no person that's doing any mediation. It's really just the audience who are deciding, I'm going to play this part. I'm very good at this. It could also be one person standing at the front for a large portion of the game and just playing it. We haven't yet seen someone play it in full all the way through. Um, and I think the audience would probably say something. Uh, if there is any mediation, it's just by virtue of the construction of the narrative that we have in the video game. Mm. But there is like we as the artists kind of take our hands off and we say it's up to the audience mm. now to decide what they want to do, when they want to do it. Uh, and that includes also intermissions. And so they can decide how long it wants to be. It'll say press X to begin whenever again. Oh, oh okay. Yeah. yeah so okay. maybe like let's pause on that just so that everyone hears that the intermissions at Asses Masses are not scheduled in terms of duration it's like if everyone in the room wants a dinner break they can take a dinner break um if they want to skip the intermission because you know they're really excited about what's going to happen next they can skip the intermission that's up to them it's up to whoever has the controller but also the sort of you know the social contract that they've created for themselves around the game Mm. Hmm. so i am curious where the what the genesis of this show was um, this video game slash show, uh, how did you decide that it was going to be something that an audience would participate in? How did this all come about? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. So, <clears throat> sorry, the uh, the origins of it, it's kind of got like a number of beginnings as every, I guess, sort of good epic should. Um, but, you know, in the mix of it is Milton and I were building, <clears throat> sorry, Milton and I were building another game, uh, a card game about the arts economy called Culture Capital, and that project is still alive and sort of going, but that's another podcast. Um, and but we've been through that project. We had been talking about um, what it means to sort of put real games on stage, um, and maybe I'll bracket that because I think talking about what we mean by real games is possibly contentious, but also important to have uh, that conversation. At the same time, I was finishing my MFA and I was doing sort of various aesthetic experiments on representations of knowledge through books. And a donkey was a great antithesis to this image. I don't know where, I think I saw it in a book. Um, You know, I've been well aware of donkeys for a very long time. And, you know, in learning and sort of digging into like this figure, it became clear that you know there was, the donkey had uh, has sort of suffered from a, a lot of misrepresentation in its history as an animal. It's not actually stupid. It's not actually stubborn. Um, actually, they're very sort of wise and sort of caring and philosophical animals that try to understand situations. And so, what we perceive to be sort of stubborn stupidity in freezing is actually thoughtfulness. Um, and at the same time, you know, learning and sort of diving into like just sort of falling in love with the sort of lore around this animal, it became clear that there's a lot of um, contemporary issues that still face this animal, though it has disappeared from like a North American context uh, or a certain, sorry, not North American, but like certain urban kind of life spaces in North America and parts of Western Europe. It's still like a lifeblood in many parts of South America, Central America. Um, Northern Africa. And, uh, you know, there's a huge uh, kind of like scandalous skin trade that's taking place out of China where donkeys are being sort of harvested and liquidated for or their skins are being liquidated to create sort of a traditional Chinese medicine product. And there's, so the, the idea that literally this animal who did so much for humanity to get us out of sort of these like very basic forms of civilization is now being liquidated and consumed um, sort of sparked a question around like, how do we, how do we think about the place of the historical worker? What is labor today? Um, You know, how it seemed like there's an opportunity for a conversation through this figure of the animal and both as a sort of a symbol, but also the real situation itself. And um, you know, digital labor is in there somewhere. And maybe Milton, you want to spin on like, yeah, there were some digital things and tech stuff as well. <laughs> yeah, I think it, it was in the constellation of different thoughts that we had around delegated labor and participation. And we thought labor, we thought the performer, we thought donkeys, and these things tended to coalesce in ways that we were, we were realizing that we were giving over the work of doing this performance to the audience. Um, and so in digital labor as well, we just kept coming back to like, where is labor going in the world? Where is labor in the role of our story? 
Um, and also even in the room itself, like where does the kind of labor take place and what are the metaphors that are around as we're doing the story about both donkeys, but also about the working class um, and about performance and theater. And I think actually an important part of that is um, we were talking about simulated labor in video games. Like if you've played video games, you maybe have like harvested a field for a few hours in order to get a couple more like rupees or gill in order to buy a new sword. Um, and we were having this sort of conversation about, you know, is that what is meaningful labor? What's meaningful action? Um, is there uh, is there a way that we can have that conversation? And it seemed like video games were an interesting place where it is meaningful labor, very much so. But it doesn't produce, you know, growing a digital carrot versus growing a carrot in your garden. Um, the thing, the thing that is produced through that process is very different. And to what ends are we mobilizing those products? Um, and to whom does it benefit really in the end? So that like, we're in that kind of soup, um, as we started. And yeah. this might it, create another opening, but just to say like um, the duration of labor as well, especially when we come back to uh, typical duration that's expected out of theatrical practices, that when we thought about um, the fact that, you know, some people play video games for 60 plus hours uh, and then like they binge play something for like all night until the sun comes up, uh, those encompass different narratives, different relationships to labor and to play that we wanted to invoke by making it a video game and a performance. Um, Patrick, you mentioned real games. Can we get into uh, what that what that means? What, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so I mean, okay, we're going to volley this sort of back and forth because it is let's a subject it. that is... Um, let's start at sort of a beginning. So both Milton and I come out of devised theater kind of practices. Um, and a lot of those practices use games to create material, you know, simple games and not just sort of like, I can't even name a sort of a high school theater warm up game, but like, you know, identifying game structures as like a win and a lose in a scene or um, actually sort of like throwing something back and forth on stage. And if the ball drops, that triggers like something that's an outcome um, that I think is a very sort of. For me, I'm just, I guess this is my history because Milton has a very more intimate relationship to video gaming than I do. Um, but to me, when we started to have a conversation about like, when are the games that we see ourselves playing on stage real or sort of simulated? Um, in the sense that, as you asked, is there anyone in the audience who's like going to handhold or sort of railroad and help the audience get through the experience? Um, we categorically say no there's not because we want the game to stand on its own feet and be fully functional on its own we've seen i think examples of games in um canada but also like international theatrical landscapes where uh you you enter into a game context and you believe yourself to be playing a game but there is a bit of theatrical magic that sort of swoops in at certain moments to make sure that the outcome is the same and that's not the same as in saying like it's the same end of the story because right you might play final fantasy 10 and you're always going to get the same moments like sort of that video at the end that is the end of the story but there's something about that kind of theatrical propping up that we wanted to take away because it felt like it was a disservice to the idea that games were in and of themselves performative spaces like live art um, why do we keep sort of trying to shoebox them into a two-hour sort of mold or um, sort of make sure that they have like an act three moment that lands at exactly 90 minutes in so that people feel this certain emotion only and at that time? Um, Milton, do you want to spin your own? Spin my own yarn? Uh, yeah, so yeah, I would say... Yes, there's like the reaction to kind of especially Canadian theatrical practice where uh, a lot of the kind of images of games that we see are not really games. They're they're illusions of games or they are invoking the idea of games, but like you don't really get to play the game or as Patrick is saying, um, like the game itself is not on stage. And so that kind of became a very direct line for us to say, like, what 
if the game was the thing on stage? Uh, what if it wasn't about trying to, I'm going to play, you're going to watch, and then like I'm just going to use the idea of the video game as a metaphor for something. Um, and instead, like the the core of it and the essence of what Asses Masses is, is actually what I might do on my off time and what a lot of people wouldn't consider art. And I think that was really important for us to say like, well, why aren't these things that are very similar in a lot of veins, even in terms of the the kind of practice of creation of games, like the amount of theater makers that go into game development is much more than people expect. And I think that's worth saying because of the times that you might read um, like in some sort of niche magazine about people doing Feldenkrais workshops and like practices as, as they're trying to warm up and get ready for doing blocking for a scene inside of a video game. Um, that seems outside of the purview for a lot of theatrical, um, I guess, communities that that would also be serious art or serious games in some way. Mm-hmm. So uh, the games for us that are serious, and we understand that there are different categories that a lot of game academics and theorists would say like, oh, well, that breaks down. We can get really kind of granular and and in the weeds about it. But for our purposes in this podcast, I, w- I would definitely say that um, we don't often see full games with any sort of like agency being explored in a lot of participatory performance in Canada. Yeah. And maybe just to tag on, I think that um, this is where the relationship to Culture Capital, the kind of sister project of this one, is really important because that is a competitive trading card game about the arts economy. We gather the public funding data for every arts organization in Canada. We aggregate it and then we publish it publicly online on culturecapital.cards. And then we take that data and we sort of fuel a design to have um, real theater companies sort of face off against each other in a not so like semi-fictional context. Um, And when we do that and we did the tournament right before the pandemic in Edmonton, uh, you know, a a final, you could come to the final and it could be 30 minutes or it could be a three and a half hour like nail biter. Those are temporal experiences that we have in other forms of like event design and event experiences, whether it's sports or um, different forms of arts, Uh, you know, so trying to listen to say, okay, well, what if something else other than my like directorial decision that like 120 minutes is like enough, or rather it's probably not even a directorial one. It's like a producerial sort of clamp down. Um, What if the actual materials that are on stage determined how long and at, in what way this is going to unfold? Is that going to be like, it depends on what cards come up and in what order they come up. It depends on whether or not someone wants to plow a field for 30 minutes because they want to get the highest plowing field score, um, which you can do in Asses Masses on September 20th to 24th uh, in Toronto. So like, do you know what I mean? Like that is the, uh, that's the range that we were interested in sort of being, prov- offering it also as like a provocation to our community to say like, let's, Let's take more seriously how we do things on these stages. Um, In case we passed over relatively fast, September 22nd to 24th. What did I say? It sounded like 20th. I hope not. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) We'll fix it in post. post. So the 22nd to the 24th is the early days. Yeah. Anyways, not not the sort of like, you know. Yeah, come back to, but let's keep going on this because it is, I mean, maybe for you, Phil, and you've seen other things in Toronto or you've seen other things in other parts of the world where you, you're thinking about like participation and where your relationship is to it. Um, and you know, if, uh, or like, you know, does that make sense to you? Like when we say like, Hey, can, what is the thing that's driving the bus really? Um, and is it just like a well-trained group of actors who for the most part have rehearsed the thing to a point that they can do the thing at the same time every night. And you can hear that equity stage manager being like, um, you were two minutes late tonight, uh, <laughs> tomorrow, like pick it up. Cause that to me is like a, a that is like a paradigm, not to pick on a stage manager who's just doing their job, but like that's paradigmatic of a problem of our relationship to theater in Canada, for sure, that it doesn't breathe. Like if it can't be two minutes shorter or two minutes or 10 minutes longer the next night, because the actors like really started to like, live a certain moment um you know what are we doing it's not going to feel alive and video games feel alive because often there's other people in the world with you or at least the npc system is at a point where it's actually going to like talk to you back 
in more ways than the actors are going to. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to uh, talk a little bit about, um, you were mentioning about video games as art. I remember years ago I had, uh, I was listening to some some radio show and they were complaining about you know, how video games could possibly be art. And, you know, it's just, you know, a red dot moving through a maze. And I was like, you haven't touched a video game since 1983. Um, and at the same time, I think I was playing uh, uh, through the Mass Effect series. And I think what, what made me so angry at that statement was the fact that in that series, by the time I got to the to the last game, I was having emotional experiences in the game. And I was sort of like, how if this is happening, how is that not art? How is it not art? And then if you could take an audience that is reacting together, and that's just the essential piece of a theatrical experience, is an audience that's that's reacting together, breathing together. If they're experiencing it together and reacting to it and having real emotional experiences together, then that is art. That's theater. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, yeah. Well, what if, I get it. We should talk about a bit of story because we, yeah. Asses Masses is a long story and we're not going to sort of, we don't want to do spoilers and stuff like that because, um, you know, we, we have done our darndest to um, create a story that has quite a few surprises um, along the way. It's structured in episodes. So, you know, it's a very familiar kind of binge watchable um, structure, which we purposefully used rather than sort of chapters or um, other ways of sort of demarcating the separation between these moments. Um, and, you know, Laurel Green, who is our um, wonderful dramaturg and co-writer on the project, she joined two years into it right before we went to, uh, once before, right before we sent the game to Argentina for the first time to be played during the pandemic at their international festival. And, you know, we've worked together between the three of us over the last, I mean, it's been years now, uh, to sort of shape something that gets to, you know, that gets us through a lot of these um difficult moments for characters uh we recognize you know like that as game designers like we have a responsibility to create mechanics that are challenging that to create worlds that are sort of like beautiful but also characters that are um you know really uh like whether it's relatable or like that you can see yourself in them that they also speak to different sort of points of view that we feel like a lot of people might occupy in this current age uh especially around like technology whether it's technophobia or whether it's pro-technology or whether it's um certain political positions that people take around um uprising <laughs> or like you know are you the type to join a protest if it's going down the street or not and like how do we sort of try to have through this ensemble cast that we have of many many donkeys i think it's like 15 um that you know that there's room for everyone and that also really comes back to asking questions about where is this going and who are the people who are going to be in the room and how do we make sure that a story that's this big has room for everyone to you know get on get on board with different characters at different times um that's been you know that's been this sort of like continual process of us of refinement over the course of workshopping it of saying like hey this character is really like you know, people are really connecting to them. Like, how do we find ways that everyone has like a moment to, um, to take, uh, to take the helm, I guess, because each, each episode is led by a different donkey. And, you know, that's again, another way of sort of encouraging this sort of passing of the controller, passing of identification, passing of the lens that we're sort of experiencing the story through. I think it's also important to say that, um, the kind of narrative that we were chasing couldn't have been told in less than two hours. Um, and that's true of a lot of kind of binge, like serialized, episodic kind of narratives that we're used to mm -hmm. a lot uh, nowadays. Um, and that introduces a different relationship to character, especially when you're participating in it and you play as that character. Um, and all of those things, especially game-wise, if anyone's played like The Last of Us um, and watched The Last of Us and just tried to analyze the difference between watching those characters do something versus having to do it yourself, um, all those things were alive in our conversations about when do we get characters to do certain things? When do we have to be on side with the character? When are we opposed to the character? So in addition to creating what feels like this epic narrative that has an ensemble cast of really memorable characters, 
um, we were also tasked with trying to find out what is the player's relationship and the audience's relationship to any of these characters at a given time. And so what we hope has happened is that it's created a really rich tapestry um, that you can both see yourself, a reflection of yourself, um, but also ask questions in real time, which often we don't get to do inside of theatrical practice because you're in the dark and we're quiet sitting beside a stranger. Yeah. But in this case, we're actually asked to like, well, how do we feel about something? Let's let's have a forum about this. Um, and so we come back to the kind of narratives that you can have inside of couch co-op games or just sharing the controller with your friends in the basement uh, because it is that open conversation in real time with this seven plus hour show. Yeah. It's interesting the way that, that games change because you can come at them at a different way each time. Different person who's holding the controller will go in different ways. Some people will go straight for the main story and they'll finish yeah. the game really quickly. And some people will uh, uh, do side quests. I have a bad tendency to follow the main story because as soon as they say, this is urgent, I'm like, okay, it's urgent. Rather than, you know, even though I know if it was actually urgent, they would have a timer on the screen. So I like fall into that trap a lot. And then on my second playthrough, I do side quests. But everybody plays games in a different way. Totally. Mm-hmm. And actually, you've brought up a really good point because this is a game that most people play once. Um, there's no harm in you coming every night. Uh, it's at 6 p.m., 4 p.m., and 2 p.m. Uh, in <laughs> Toronto from the 22nd to the 24th. And But th- there is no harm in coming again, and there is variation um, for sure. Like, we're not going to tell anyone that um, it's exactly the same every night. And uh, But one of the things is, you know, just a, as an anecdote, we had one time there's an area in the in the game uh, there's a lot of things that you can do um hour like an hour probably of content um of like of explorable material and uh i think the very first time we put it in front of an audience they just ran right through it um and just like ignored all of it and that's cool it's like sure they didn't see the thing that happened at the end of that scene um they didn't see what was over to the west or the east that's fine um and you know people who have played the game now who were in that show like they had come back another time to see it and uh you know they were like hold on hold on wait like can we go over there and there's so we we don't know what it's like you know if people if people come to see asses masses multiple times um, that changes the community fabric, but also, um, yeah, it'll be up to them about their generosity of how they help people experience it for the first time. Yeah. I, I, the, the first time, like the first time I played through the mass effect series, um, I missed a bunch of things. Also right. the game changes depending on so many different factors that you, that you, if you have one experience, the whole game, you have to play it at least three times, probably six. Um, but there are things that I missed. I didn't ask the right questions. I didn't do this. I didn't do that. And there are whole storylines that you miss out on if you don't do exactly the right thing. So now it's funny because years later, you can actually go online and find out exactly how to hit all of the story points that you missed the first time because there are tutorials of people who've done it before. Um, But it's amazing to think about about all the things that I missed the first time. And that somewhere there's a developer and a writer who were like, but you missed all of this stuff. And and unlike with, I mean, again, somebody can go back and play, can attend again they might not be in control of the controller at that point. And so very interesting to see this uh, come together in that way. That was something that we had to really negotiate as, especially when we were writing it, where we became so endeared to this narrative. We're like, oh yeah, the character will say this. And like, this is some of the best writing that I've done today. And then to know like, oh, you know what? They might just not have this pass at of it at all because there are different ways that you can play asses masses there are choices that you might know are choices other ones that happen in the background you have no idea as you're playing it um, and we felt like that's important for creating and worlding a space that feels very alive and as you're playing through it um, you know just like in real life we don't know all the time when we make a decision that's going to impact the rest of the day or the rest of our lives sometimes it just happens in the background um, and so well, and I think, yeah i was just going to say that one of the hardest things is to not like how do the games that we love that have that variation in them don't make you feel like you're missing things Mm -hmm. that i think is one of the most successful when we think about all those like wonderful final fantasy games um like how is it that you like you know there's like so many other things and side quests and many things and easter eggs but how is it that um they structure space structure aesthetics characters 
that when you're playing it, you're not just regretting already having missed things. And that's something, you know, we really hope that um, people don't regret the decisions they make because, you know, they're made as a group. They're, you're in the moment. And the, the best that we can do is hope that we've created something that allows people to stay in that moment. And it's not just the moment, again, on screen, but it's also the moment in the audience. So even if they took a, a wrong turn in someone's eyes, that there's something there. And that's really our responsibility, that if you go a different direction, um, there's no bad direction. It's just different. And and it, it should ideally reflect the sort of, whether it's jubilation or, you know, um, intensity or focus that's in the room. Uh, so that's our hope. Yeah. Hmm. I am curious about whether you have faced pushback on the concept of this video game as theater. <laughs> Is that something that's come up and how do you respond to that? Yes. The answer is yes. Uh, how it's come up, uh, it depends on at which intersection of the game. I think the fun, like we didn't get funding for the project for what was the first year and a half, two years. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of gone in. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so like that was one side, which is like our peers on the arts jury didn't feel like it was either theater enough i think at a certain point we switched over to inter arts with canada council nope no we've uh, been theater all the way through we've been theater all the way through i stand corrected um so we've been theater all the way through and um you know yes and there have been other places where people just don't don't quite buy into the idea usually they haven't played the game and they are opposed to like hmm that doesn't feel like it's something that can work or like i can't imagine something like that I don't know, Patrick, what else comes to mind for people who have kind of had no feelings, not no feelings, but like, no, yeah, feelings. I, mean, I think the, you know, when we say it's like, Hey, this is what it is. And it's like, Oh, that's asking a lot. Hmm. Um, and I think that that is a great expression of where we are like psychologically as, um, people right now that like, and also like the, the values that we've now attributed to these art forms because it's not a lot to go home and watch all of white lotus in one sitting like how many people did that music carries you like all the way through and uh but for some reason to come into a public space oh that's a lot to be in public in a public space for all that time that's a lot even though you could probably watch white lotus with your friends all that time and it would be fine but so we i think that you know we're any pushback and it's not really pushback, but I think any hesitation that people have had is really like a great opportunity for us to say like, Hey, let's talk about why, why we feel like this is too much. Um, because we've got people writing hundreds of pages of novels. Um, we've got, you know, movies that increasingly get longer and longer. And we'd all like, how many of us Phil, have you been to a Lord of the Rings movie marathon before? I, I have not, but I've done a one on my own. So I haven't done it like at a theater, but definitely so I guess that's the extended, question. extended versions. Absolutely. So yeah, no, I would, I would presume no less, uh, <laughs> but like that is, I think that's like a really important question for us to come back to that. It's okay to do it alone. Um, but the issues that we face and the issues that we're talking about, and I would say a lot of the issues that are even represented in this serialized media, they're not issues that are ever going to be surmounted alone. So why do we keep consuming media in those places when, you know, the number of times we like see a movie that ends with the sort of a culmination of a group overcoming a, an obstacle, but we watch it alone now on a computer. Um, that is, there's a question there. I'm not saying it's a bad thing to watch it on your computer because that's maybe the situation that you've got, but let's ask ourselves where we consume the media and whether or not those are places that create launching pads for actually walking out and saying, Hey, let's make sure that that doesn't happen or let's stop that from happening. Cause it is real here. Mm. And for anyone who's played something like death stranding, where it's about the question of how to be alone and together and together alone and what this network to play is asking similar questions, but in a different direction, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, it's like uh, about the contemporary state of not being able to play all at the same time. We're in the same place, but we're all, asynchronously existing in the same world where I can leave a note for someone else and it persists for that other person to pick it up or my direct uh, actions can affect someone else. And so our question, because of our um, attunement, but also our interest in what public gathering looks like, has taken place inside of a theater. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I also did want to say that the idea of um, pushback has also come in the form of people feeling like it's not really a show for them because they don't play video games. Um, and as someone who plays video games, I can understand that to a point, but also I can't I can't pretend to say like I know exactly what that is because I'm in-worlded in that already. But um, I think that what I've witnessed from a lot of friends and anyone who really, which is a lot of people, uh, participated in someone else playing a video game or like has watched it, doesn't necessarily need to have the technical skill to be able to execute certain things. And that became a very important part of how we imagined Asses Masses so that everyone brings the best part of what they can of themselves to the show. And that doesn't have to be that they're a great video game player. They don't have to know all the genres that we use because there are a lot of them. And instead, uh, they have to come with their eyes, their willing participation, and the the willingness to have a fun night at the theater. And if they have all those things, then the rest of it is just enfolded within the different things that we've designed as game designers, uh, but also as people who make live performance. Hmm. And I think that's a great way to go back to something you asked already, Phil, which is, you know, some games are more fun to watch than others. So how did we decide what games that we were going to make? Um, well, we were at the theater center as artists in residence during the pandemic. And we, in one of the sort of like, you know, uh, liberated moments, I don't know what we call it, um, the pauses from the indoors, uh, we were able to go to Toronto and we had three weeks there to one, visit donkeys in outside of Guelph uh, and do some sound recordings and sort of like hang out with the real, uh, the real cast. And uh, then we also tested video games as part of this sort of video game night. So Milton had sort of curated a series of nights where people would come. We'd invite anyone. It was like totally public and open to anyone to come and play a random selection of games, anything from like, um, it wasn't random. It was very specific. Sorry, Milton. Uh, (laughs) Of like, you know, uh, whether it's Resident Evil to Overcooked to, you know, games that have very distinct um, genre and, and mechanics but it allowed us to sit in the back and we just took notes and watched how those games activated different people and some games that are amazing to play are not fun to watch and some games that are you know they're okay to play um like they're maybe more simple but they're a, a lot of fun to watch because there's like room for more whether it's heckling or whether it's sort of um supportive commentary uh and you know go left go left whatever it's gonna be or like things that involve memorization things that like we look at like mario party we look at um i don't know what i'm trying to I'm blanking on all of the other ones but a way out was also nights in a row a way out was a great example of like a collaborative game um where you know two players are record are required in order to, to move the story along at uh, in any way at all so that that taught us a lot and we use that as a very sort of important moment as we moved from the first four episodes of the game into the last six episodes of the game and we keep coming back to that when we think about okay so what is the information what are these game forms let does it serve the story that we're trying to tell right now um or what is the game that's already inherent in the moment that we're our characters are in let's see if we can build something out of that and then what can we take away or simplify or reduce so that it demands a little bit more on the audience like can we remove a mini map can we remove details so that you're told them once and you better hope that some of the either like 50 to 100 people who are in that audience remember it um those principles have guided the now entire sort of like the full arc of asses masses design because uh and i guess that's what makes it weird as a video game is that some of these things that you're supposed to have we've just deliberately left out to make it uh depend on more brains it, that's that's fascinating to me because you guys are approaching this in a way that's like intending for an audience to see it and i think a lot of those games that are really great as couch co-op or as as what games that you can watch i don't necessarily know that they were intended that way is just they happen to be by the ver- by virtue of how they how they came up uh, uh you mentioned resident evil i can remember again much like final fantasy playing that with one person playing it and everybody else hiding behind the, like they're screaming. Yeah. Screaming. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I had one particular roommate who screamed, screamed every time there was a zombie. And it was part of the joy of playing the game is that guy's going to scream. And it was a terrifying game, but I don't know that it would have been quite as terrifying if we weren't all reacting to it together, but that's not right. what the game designers 
uh, uh, intended necessarily. Um, you guys have come at this uh, with that specific thing in mind. Um, one question that I have is 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 for Patrick specifically, but also uh, for Milton uh, in relation to that. Patrick, you learned to code specifically for this game. Um, was that daunting? And 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 tell me about about how that unfolded. Yeah, so it's sort of an accident. Um, but you know, we started. So this process started on the stage of the Shadbolt Theater in um, Burnaby. British Columbia. We got a projector. We like downloaded Unity, and Milton and I sat next to each other, and um, we would we just started doing tutorials, uh, in order to sort of like have like a mock up of it uh, and to see if it was any of interest. And then um, you know the world unfolded in the way that it did. Uh, that was in 2018 when we had that residency. So you know the world unfolded the way it did, and um, and I guess, was it daunting? Yeah, it's like a totally different version of being um, on the hook for like a crash. Uh, you know, we still have this conversation when like if something in our beta testing, <clears throat> sorry, in our beta testing, I'm getting emotional about all the crashes. No, in the beta, in the beta testing, if something goes wrong, it's definitely <clears throat> that kind of thing where you you see it differently um, as a director. I think like both Milton is trained as an actor. I am not. I have a philosophy undergrad and I considered myself more of a writer and a director for, um, you know, in the time when I identified solely under the umbrella of theater. And so there's a different, like, you know, there's almost in some ways there's a performer quality to the coding that has happened. Um, I feel like it's very alive and I know where, you know, there, I've always known where there's like a crunchy bit and I like, you know, I bite, I like bite my fingernails as we like get through some of these areas again in the beta testing. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Milton, Milton has been privy to the whole process of me learning it and sort of like trying to, to do it. And so, uh, you know, it's YouTube school, mm -hmm. uh, the whole way down. Um, so if anyone is like aspiring to being like, Hey, I'd love to explore like the options of this just know that everything that we've done is uh you know we learned it from youtube um we don't actually have that many contacts who are professional game programmers just the nature of maybe where we live um the, the way our sort of theater community is siloed off from that world um so that that's you know that was a there was some times of being like wow we're really alone in this like we don't know how to achieve the thing that we want to achieve, what can we come up with? Um, that's more daunting. I think like learning the programming is like, you know, you know, you're looking at physics stuff that you haven't looked at since high school, maybe. Um, and you think about these stereotypes of people who are like, oh, I don't really like like math. And so I'm in theater. You're like, cool, but all of the best stage design is definitely math. Yeah. <laughs> um, so like, let's go to math town and, uh, get everything that we need so that you know learning that has been um a process and in part asses masses is a, the greatest like school because mm. or it was for me because every single time we wanted to do something it would push me a little bit more milton would test and like we'd like look at it together and at this point now like you know we both look at code um and that is you know that's that's how this is working now uh, but at, yeah, early days, you're like, okay, here we go. Let's, you have the idea and everyone has too expensive to realize it. So you're going to do it yourself. Uh, basically is another version of how that. <laughs> Milton, what was your programming experience? Like, uh, at the time that you guys started working on this, it, were you learning along with Patrick or were, did you already have the knowledge? We started learning together, but during the pandemic, uh, Patrick certainly far outpaced me. Um, I come from more like a media art practice. And so node-based visual programming was kind of where I felt uh, most strongly suited for. And so when it came to things like doing shaders for our 3D effects and for our 2D things as well, um, Patrick also came in with work in like Photoshop and Illustrator, um, being able to do a lot of the pixel art assets. So maybe just to say like, this is not really an isolated thing for the two of us. I think as artists, we both like to be very flexible with um, the forms that we use and the skills that are necessary to be able to achieve them. And so um, basically every step of the way, especially for the first two years, 
if something needed to get done, one of us would just hop on a tutorial and like figure out how to do it from like sound to like cutscenes, especially on the programming and coding on Patrick's side. Um, and then we just kind of had to figure out on the fly. And it wasn't until we were fortunate to have uh, two additional members join our core team and then four additional members join our extended team at the last little bit as we were uh, successful in getting the National Creation Fund through the National Arts um, uh, Center at uh, of Canada that we all of a sudden had a full team behind us that really reoriented our time from being able to like, now I have to do tutorials and do it all myself to now having to negotiate time zones and making sure that we could be present to explain all the things that we learned how to do on the fly to people who arguably know how to do it better. <laughs> and so um, uh, that was that was a big challenge in different ways. And the project really evolved from moment to moment, from time to time, and really tested our skills. Um, but maybe to answer your question more directly, um, I still don't uh, program uh, on my own. Um, and so visual programming is how I would often execute things. So whether or not that's in Unity or Touch Designer or Isadora. Hmm. Yeah. And that balance though, I mean, when you think this is something we've been doing, this isn't isolated to asses masses. So, um, you know, we are the types, we are sort of DIY, like, Hey, you want to build it, build it yourself, figure out how to do it because you're going to discover some really weird thing in the process of learning. And you're like, actually, that's kind of cool. Let's keep it. Um, there are a number of parts of asses masses that you're like, Hey, this came out of like us prototyping it on our own and just trying to imagine how we would do it and not necessarily following conventions. Um, but in our other work too, you know, we, uh, whether it's like I do maybe some more graphic design, Milton does video and sort of, um, effects and, or sort of like live, um, live interactive media systems like there's this sort of dialogue where we sort of things come our respective ways and we say okay which of us can which of us can take this right now um and it asks masses i think you know the the additional thing is that we share we share all of the sort of decisions about what's said and the structure of the story and like and those are actually where we you know have to get into like the weeds because the sort of technical stuff of like how we're going to execute it you know, it's objectively like, Hey, this picture, this sprite animation is like not good enough. So like, we're all in agreement about that, but subjective, more, somewhat more subjective things around like, Hey, so like, should the character say X or Y, um, you know, and then we get into the sort of like the old world of like our theater degrees of like, well, why, if the person is coming from this experience, like that's actually more where I think after the bulk of programming happened, um, that's where like the a lot of our time ended up being spent together uh alongside laurel as well yeah now uh milton you mentioned uh being being a gamer that you curated those events that you were at uh, at the theater center um uh patrick were you a gamer before this or is that a new thing for you i'm just curious about your gaming relationship yeah so um i grew up playing video games i was like a PlayStation one kid, um, crash bandicoot to find my childhood and, uh, final fantasy 10 and like, you know, a slew of other sort of RPGs. And then I stopped playing video games when I was in high school, I became a kind of a jock, um, athlete type of person. And, and I walked away from them and I just like, didn't have time. It wasn't, I think a lot of people also wanted to play more cooperative games and, um, and I liked, more narrative games i also feel like there was a moment where the consoles were coming out very fast and they were expensive like it just became like i had there was a moment in my childhood where it was like we'd managed to like put together we'd had like a ps1 ps2 and an n64 and then i look back and i was like at a certain point i had a gamecube and i was like geez i've got all of these like consoles but um and so i couldn't like afford to keep doing it and then I guess like almost 15 years later, um, I played journey, uh, and journey was, and for those who come to see asses masses, they can see, you know, they can ask themselves like what moment of this game may or may not have been inspired by someone's experience playing journey. Um, but that was, that was the big game. And I think I actually went to Milton not long after and was like, Hey, I have this idea about some donkeys and this like field um you know like let's can we like talk about it and 
that so that's sort of i and i think in the process of it and then i started to just borrow milton's games like i borrowed um oh my god what did i borrow it was the big one uh the three part uh near near automata that was the next one that i was like so my sort of like as i was sort of then like taking like learning from what we were doing but ironically you know they take a lot of time to play and uh <laughs> to sort of cycle back to this it's like hey that's asking a lot well it's like learning how to build video games became actually my main focus over the last four years whereas milton was playing video games and analyzing them and then we'd sort of like come back together to be like okay what can we do in the context well here's what i've learned how to do this week and you know it's like well this mechanic is happening in this game this is like really interesting this is asking a new you know this is presenting this type of interaction in a new way is that of interest to us and that dialogue um you know, still goes on. Milton, what kind of things is you're analyzing video games? And I don't know, don't necessarily need the whole list of the, the games that you were analyzing. Um, <laughs> the, the big long scroll. Uh, were there particular tropes or things that you noticed as you were uh, uh, analyzing video games that you brought into Asses Masses? Yes, it really depends on what episode because Asses Masses is not the kind of game where we build one cohesive system and everything revolves around that system. So if anyone knows like from software games and like Dark Souls or Demon Souls and it's all built around kind of the fighting mechanics, that's not really Asses Masses. Asses Masses per episode has like wildly different um kind of strategies that you need to use, an entirely different um orientation towards like our sprite assets. Um, and so it really meant like kind of rebuilding from the bottom for so much of the game. So when it comes down to like tropes uh, that we wanted to use, uh, they're pretty episode specific. And we had to think really dramaturgically about how any particular game trope or idea wanted to be executed mechanically, but also narratively. And so, for example, uh, a key thing for us for most of the game was this question of stakes, narrative stakes and death. And so in this role-playing game, we, we wanted death to actually mean something, but that also meant that you couldn't really, in the game language of things, die and retry. Um, and that became a huge conversation for us. We ended up bending a little bit on one game. Um, I'll say it because I don't think people will play it in time for the game, but Katana Zero um, was uh, something we were thinking of at the time. And then I played that and I'm like, that is a distillation of how we were thinking we might try to get around thinking about death and, and retrying. Um, and so that was one instance, there were things around how characters were being treated and long, long conversations that we had about our place as spectators and what an avatar is versus someone who's like an NPC companion who can say what things. Um, and then how do those things kind of stick in our memory, uh, as we think about like character objectives and goals. Um, and so we really leaned into ensemble based storytelling games, uh, Mutazione, uh, Kentucky Route Zero a little bit, um, and those kind of games that, while on more of the experimental side, really for us meant that it wasn't about telling the same kind of stories, but instead telling the story about a group and a world. And that was probably most important to us. Um, but otherwise, to get more specific than that, I'd have to go into details and spoilers, probably. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, don't you, we could say, like, at the very beginning, you know, we were working, we, we knew we were working with 2D and 3D environments. Mm -hmm. So Asses Masses is in both sort of mm. aesthetics. Um, there's a meaningful distinction between when we use one versus the other. And, um, you know, as we're learning from the very beginning, like we're very much inside of the aesthetic universe of Pokemon. That was like an important um, thing for me. Like it's sort of even at the very beginning of it in, in the idea of like animals and like, you know, maybe people have seen PETA's version of Pokemon um, YouTube video. It's funny uh, and tragic, uh, but the, you know, trying to think about like, how do we, when we look to other games to invite those references, that also becomes this, um, like there's a genre and there's a tone and there's a history and a narrative for like different players associated with Metal Gear Solid or with Pokemon or with, you know, the certain color of blue that we use um, might be recognizable to people who've played certain games and like that becomes something that we try to be very intentional about as best as we can um you know inviting those references in at moments that actually might help you understand like what your goal is 
or help you understand the scenario. Like, ah, okay, is that a cardboard box? Like, maybe, maybe there's something we can do here um, for the Metal Gear Solid people. And like that, that became not just like needless um, Easter eggs in a sense, or like homages outside of it, but really saying like, this is a dialogue amongst a lot of different art works and artists. And so let's, you know, let's bring those together um, in moments that uh, like sort of support kind of what we're doing. Um, just as we uh, come to a close, I'd like to finish off by asking you each, if you could tell me um, what was the earliest video game that you played that you feel uh, informs Asses Masses? Patrick, you go first. <laughs> uh, why? Because I'm younger and so it's more recent. <laughs> That's, sure, let's go with that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think that uh, I think the sort of pillar, like the emotional pillars of for me of video games and asses masses still come back to the like a sort of a dialogue between Final Fantasy X and Journey that those um, like I remember weeping at the end of Final Fantasy X and um, thinking about like scale and like, you know, hundreds of hours. Um, and then I also remembered when I, I guess, you know, I wasn't as involved, but when I had played journey thinking about, um, a new negotiation around task, um, like an objective, like what is my goal? And, um, I think I grew up in a context where a lot of my peers were really interested in gun, like first person shooter games. And I didn't have as much of a community around me who was really enthusiastic about playing Zelda or uh, Final Fantasy, so which are also full of weapons. Let's be real, but like there's a there was a conversation of like an aesthetic conversation around um, flow that obviously um, that game company literally I mm -hmm. was doing, and uh, yeah, the pixel art. I think that uh, I'm undecided as to like what whether that comes from just like a relationship to Pokemon or whether it's like, yeah, no. Okay. Phil, I think you asked about for the earliest yes. one that kind of idea for you, but sure. <laughs> you have an idea for me. I'm curious. Well, I was just in terms of which ones we come back to as like, Hey, what are these pillars? But tell me yours first. No, no, no. I want to know. I think that Chrono Trigger and Chrono Cross had a very, um, important place in, thinking about like time scale variability and and i've never played those so it's always been this thing where it's like tell me more and i've watched i've now actually watched youtube videos of other people playing them um but you know that that was anyways tell us your version Milton, of yeah Wonder. it was it was gonna be chrono trigger for an epic narrative that involves a cast of characters um mm -hmm. and i i remember sitting and like falling asleep really to the music of those worlds and i think in the early days of Asses Masses, just really trying to figure out like what is the tone of this space. And I kept coming back to Chrono Trigger as an example of how uh, enfolded I became into not only the narrative, not only the characters, but also the kind of um, the space that I could uh, be be inside. So that was, I'm going to cheat a little bit because I think Patrick, you had two examples too. But, I have two um, examples, true. Yeah. So then the other one, uh, also on Epic Narratives, and these are both kind of well-known games, but Final Fantasy VII kind of came up for uh, for me very early on because I was I never played Final Fantasy VII the first time. I never touched the controller. Um, I, it was a family friend, uh, their son had the controller and he didn't let me play. And I just remember sitting there in the back being engrossed in a story that I never had the chance to pick up the controller for. Um, and I came back a lot to that essence of like still feeling so involved, but I actually, I, I would like say something in the back and he told me to like, Shh, be quiet. Um, <laughs> that's not so, what's going to happen at Asses Massive, hopefully, but you say. never know. <laughs> so if you too have been traumatized by being denied access to the means of production, uh, whether in your youth or in your adulthood, uh, let us tell you here and now that Asses Masses is where you are encouraged to stand up and say, hey, it's my, <laughs> my turn now. Yeah. So those are the two earliest things I can think of. There are many, many more after that, but that's another conversation. Yeah. Well, thank you both. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to talk to me this evening and uh, look forward to uh, checking out Asses Masses. Thank you.
Awesome. See you there. Thank you so much. Thank you. This has been an episode of Stageworthy. Stageworthy is produced, hosted, and edited by Phil Rickaby. That's me. If you enjoyed this podcast and you listen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you can leave a five-star rating. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, you can also leave a review. Those reviews and ratings help new people find the show. If you want to keep up with what's going on with Stageworthy and my other projects, you can subscribe to my newsletter by going to philrickaby.com slash subscribe. And remember, if you want to leave a tip, you'll find a link to the virtual tip jar in the show notes or on the website. You can find Stageworthy on Twitter and Instagram at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website with the complete archive of all episodes at stageworthy.ca. If you want to find me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Phil Rickaby. And as I mentioned, my website is philrickaby.com. See you next week for another episode of Stageworthy. Worthy.